are listening to a recording of Los Altos Institute's course, Wokeness as Religion. My name is Stuart Parker, and I am the instructor. So this is, but we're, we're ending on my, one of my favorite subjects, which is American space religion. Um, this is a very interesting category. Um, and... I think that there are a number of ways in which wokeness is in this sort of larger family of American space religions. So let me, um, let me begin uh, with, so the Sandinista movement in Nicaragua um, was created by uh, Daniel Ortega and Carlos Fonseca in the uh, late 1960s. Um, uh, they were um, some variety of revolutionary Marxist, but of a particularly theocratic bent. They were, um, you know, there were a lot of Roman Catholic priests in the organization. They were very influenced by liberation theology. And the creation of the Sandinista party really followed um, the Medellin Conference of Catholic Bishops in 1968, where liberation theology, a new way of thinking about Catholicism was born. Uh, liberation theology is um, not around anymore. Um, John Paul II uh, made it his priority to stamp out liberation theology as a doctrine, and he appointed Joseph Ratzinger as um, the, uh, I think it's the convener of the doctrine of the faith, um, to issue polemics and fire people uh, to purge the church, uh, to purge the church of liberation theology. However, one of the things that insulated the Sandinista movement from all this was that they attributed their beliefs to um, the guy they named themselves after, Augusto Sandino, who had very different beliefs to theirs, but was kind of a blank canvas on which to paint. Um, Nicaragua was... Um, uh, Nicaragua was an early experiment um, or became subject to an early experiment by the United States that they would eventually um, move to the whole continent. Uh, the, they created this organization, the Nicaraguan National Guard, that was effectively the Nicaraguan army, except that it was a piece of the US Army's command structure. So the most senior orders in the Nicaraguan National Guard came from military personnel in the United States. Uh, and in this way, they um, really upped their game in the whole business of neocolonialism uh, with, um, with this Nicaraguan National Guard structure. Um, this uh, and this would, in fact, be taken continent wide when they create the School of the Americas in 1961 under John F. Kennedy, uh, where pretty much all of the senior officers in Latin America's major militaries um, are trained at the School of the Americas in Washington, D.C., 
some of the most notorious euphemisms we have for um, violence uh, come out are the, actually the names of courses that are taught at uh, School of the Americas, like enhanced interrogation techniques. So um, anyway, this Nicaraguan story, I'm going into this at a funny angle. The Augusto Sandino became a hero because he fought the Nicaraguan National Guard uh, and he organized an extraordinary coalition of um, peasants and um, other rural people. At the height of his power, uh, the United States was forced to sign a treaty with him, um, giving his movement a quarter of Nicaragua. Uh, However, um, Sandino had overestimated how much, how seriously the Americans took the treaties they signed, uh, and he was quickly betrayed and um, killed. But going into his last battle against the United States, he made quite an extraordinary speech that uh, was captured because he reassured his much depleted force of troops that they were going to win despite being horribly outnumbered because of the assistance they would receive from the ghost soldiers from Neptune. And uh, it turns out that a lot of Sandino's uh, basis uh, for his power was that he had been a Florida dock worker in the period immediately after the First World War. And when he returned to Nicaragua, he brought back with him a number of folk beliefs that he learned on um, the docks in Nicaragua, like the belief that the earth is a prison planet. Um, and that's because American space religions, um, they have certain features that well up again and again out of what Carlo Ginzburg, uh, the Italian uh, scholar of witchcraft, calls the folk substratum. Uh, Ginsburg, uh, really my only significant scholarly contribution as an academic was an article of using Ginsburg's methodology to talk about a place other than Western Europe. Ginsburg wrote um, a famous book called The Cheese and the Worms. Um, and it, um, uh, and what he noted, it was most of the book was recounting the incredibly complex worldview of a miller named Minocchio, uh, who lived in Italy in the, um, I think it was the 14th century and was brought before the Holy Inquisition because as the local miller, um, he had a real platform to propound his beliefs. And he put forward a lot of heretical beliefs, one of which was that God didn't create the earth. The earth formed naturally. It congealed out of the original matter of the universe, the way cheese forms in milk. Uh, and of course, after the cheese forms in the milk, uh, then worms grow in the cheese and we are the worms and the earth is the cheese. Uh, very, you know, interesting. And you're, Ginsburg has an engaging way of telling it, but you're sort of reading this book for a while and um, you're reading this book for a while and then suddenly you're thinking, well, what's, what's the point here? I mean, this is all very interesting, but, but what is the point? And at that point, Ginsburg says, so 60 years 
and nearly, uh, I think it was uh, 600 miles away, another Miller was brought to trial at the opposite end of Italy, preaching exactly the same beliefs. Uh, and that's not because these guys had met. It's not because they were talking about a thing that um, anybody was writing down. The only records of these religious beliefs are the records the Inquisition itself made. So I want to suggest that although our folk substratum is not the same as 14th century Italy's, that there is a set of folk religious beliefs that circulate mainly um, through spoken language in uh, North America. And that um, Sandino built his power base in Nicaragua by preaching those beliefs, by, by propounding some of the key doctrines um, that exist within the folk substratum. Now the folk substratum isn't self-consistent it's not a theology. It's just there are certain ideas that we find attractive for some reason in North America that we keep repeating that uh, catch on. So when I talk about American space religion, what I mean are religions that come out of the distinctively folk, uh, the distinctively North American folk tradition. Um, that probably began with the arrival of the cunning men in um, Pennsylvania and Vermont uh, during at the end of the 17th century. Um, so one of the common features, although not universal features of American space religion is of course space, aliens, people living on other planets. Uh, other planets being important in the theology in a way that you don't find in any European or uh, religion that you don't find in um, uh, religions in most of the world because older traditions didn't think about the things in the sky as places like here where people like us lived. They tended to personify the stars they saw as Jupiter, right? Mars, all these bright objects in the sky are gods. They're not places where gods live. But this idea, but this idea is shifting in the 18th century. And so that's one of the reasons that we see um, very in a whole bunch of Amer uh, in in a lot of American religion, this um, this idea of outer space and inhabited cosmos being an important part. There are some other interesting features, um, again having to do with when North American society formed and when it developed its consciousness. It is very hard to stir race into uh, religions, um, into old world religions, except in India, where the idea of race was developed much, much earlier than it was in the rest of the world. So um, racial categories, of course, that, that, that's what Hinduism is functionally. 
it's the, the first system of racial categorization. However, that's, that's not a common way to categorize people religiously outside of um, this one particular case. There are ideas of chosen peoples, but not an idea of there being a set of races that uh, had different properties, had a different mission on earth and could be identified solely by sight. Um, that's, um, that, that, that's more our sort of thing. So we find race is stirred in uh, pretty strongly. Uh, another feature of American space religion is a pseudoscientific approach to the soul. Um, preserving the idea of the soul through, not through simply propounding the a doctrine of ontological dualism, not uh, the idea of a matter-spirit binary, but instead trying to pull souls or spirits into the material world through the back door. Uh, now, obviously the first really successful American space religion is Mormonism. And although it has dropped many of the things that originally made it an American space religion, it's in many ways our original template. Right in 1978, uh, Mormonism dropped race as an idea, uh, and they issued a new Book of Mormon in which all references to whiteness were removed and replaced with the term pure or purity. Uh, similar, actually, to um, Western translations of the Vedas that try and make Hinduism seem less racist. Uh, but the point was that in Mormonism, there was also a priesthood ban. Black people couldn't become priests. Um, that shifted. And my great uncle Jesse became the first black Mormon priest in Kentucky in 1978. Uh, so um, uh, that was uh, so so these ideas of race were dropped. And as, as Christine pointed out in episode one, Nobody sings the Kolob hymn anymore, and nobody talks about the doctrine that uh, <clears throat> uh, that uh, uh, that uh, God was originally a man living on the planet Kolob. Um, that's all washed away. But when we look at 19th century Mormonism, we see a crescendo of this under Brigham Young, where he talks about how. Um, when the eschaton happens, the earth will be remade um, by angels schooled in high energy chemistry, uh, that, that sort of thing. Now, this, um, now it's interesting. Now I note here, this is not a thing that spread contagiously once these doctrines were propounded uh, out, in the, uh, out in the West. The next major American space religion we see um, is something called the Moorish Science Temple of America, uh, which is a, a great name for an organization. Um, the MSTA uh, came into uh, uh, came into being during the Great Migration. Um, 
when Reconstruction had collapsed in the American South in 1888, and uh, um, well, it had been collapsing over the course of the 1880s, the complete collapse is 88, um, all kinds of black people fled North. Uh, once the Klan took power in all these violent coups all over the South. And um, they came and they went from being the most rural group of Americans to the most urban group of Americans in the space of a single generation. Uh, Chicago, Detroit, um, these places suddenly had these huge black populations and they lacked much of the social infrastructure, the sense of community, the traditions of the South. Um, and these were people from all over the South. They weren't necessarily from the same parts of the South. And so a lot of new black consciousness, black unity movements came along. Uh, Marcus Garvey uh, becomes, uh, uh, becomes a, major, um, a major leader in all of this. Much more obscure is the MSTA in Chicago. It's um, led by a guy supposedly named Wallace Fard, who, um, uh, who propounds a doctrine in which, and this is, it's, it's Fard who's contemporaneous with Sandino. This is where we first start hearing about the prison planet. Uh, there, there are no prison planets in uh, Mormonism, except in Hugh Nibley's theology, in which he argues that the Earth is a quarantined planet. But he doesn't propound that doctrine until 1947. So, the uh, so there's this idea that the Earth is like is extra difficult. That 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 we've done something wrong to be imprisoned here, and. Um, that uh, we just have to get to our allies on, on the other planet. Uh, in the case of, um, uh, of the native of uh, Morris Science Temple of America, um, they're, they're not, people are not to worry because there are six trillion black people on the dark side of the moon and they're going to bail us out. Uh, MSTA um, uh, is, nobody really ever meets Fard. A guy named Drew Ali uh, runs the thing and they publish a Quran, which is quite funny because none of them uh, know any Arabic. Um, so the MSTA's Quran, I have one, is, is quite entertaining. Um, it's full of all kinds of strange stuff, and large amounts of it are plagiarized by Madame Blav of uh, plagiarism of Madame Blavatsky's uh, theosophy. In any case, um, Drew Ali takes it to a certain level, and then, well, it's quite probable that both that that Fard was actually killed at this point um, by the man who takes charge who we know as the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, who changes the name of the MSTA to the Nation of Islam. Um, Nation of Islam 
if there is any religious movement that is the closest to wokeness, it's NOI. NOI believes that um, white people um, were invented by a Jewish scientist uh, in Libya in 600 BC, and they were created as a scourge by which um, uh, the Jews would punish um, black people because black people are the only real people in the world. Uh, now, of course, uh, you know, uh, uh, this, is, uh, this is a bit difficult uh, to sustain. Um, and, uh, and so one of the things that we see from uh, Elijah Muhammad that's really important are some of the boundary maintenance functions that you get in American space religion. Um, well, some people uh, argue that um, Mormonism fits into this category too, because there are often big social consequences for being disfellowshipped. I think that was true in the past. I think like the, like the, like I think that losing that um, stigma of being disfellowshipped um, is consistent very much with Mormonism dropping the other space religion elements. Uh, but what we see here is it's highly consequential to be disfellowshipped. But what makes it consequential is what you have to do to get in. Most of the damage, what makes you vulnerable to being disfellowshipped or excommunicated is how many bridges you have to burn to get in in the first place. One of the things that NLI does as a boundary maintenance function is it declares pork, the main meat eaten by African-Americans um, as unclean and that you have to completely swear off pork. Now, Think about low-income Black families. Think about the, the, their extended family systems. Um, and the, and you know, how you're going to celebrate Carnival, how you're going to celebrate Christmas, right? You're, you're going to get some sort of pig and roast it. Um, and so what this does is it, um, it pulls the people in NOI out of their families' gatherings, out of their families' meals. The other thing that NOI is effective in doing is it invents the idea of dead name. This is, uh, this is just a whole cloth importation into uh, the genderist movement. Um, and if you think back at the history of the 20th century and the racial politics of 20th century history, you realize, right, right, Cassius Clay's transformation into Muhammad Ali is this. And what happens to him, uh, what happens to people who use the dead name? Well, we see that in one of the most famous uh, fights of Ali's where this guy, uh, the, his opponent, I can't remember which one it was, um, refuses to call him Muhammad Ali. 
uh, insists on continuing to call him Cassius Clay. And you see that fight. And the whole time, Ali is just destroying this guy in the ring. All he's saying to him over and over again is, what is my name? What is my name? What is my name? So we, of course, see this as part of the Black freedom struggle. We see that event in the most benign terms as, you know, early 21st century white liberals. But think about, uh, but I actually, one of the things I have in my, my, the authorized biography I was given to write that will never be completed because all, my, all the files are lost except for the audio, Leon Bibb, um, the uh, great uh, folk musician, entertainer, protege of Paul Robeson, uh, the guy you see standing next to Joan Baez on the cover of Life magazine, the second March on Selma. Um, Leon uh, had, um, it, Leon grew up in the same neighborhood as Muhammad Ali. Um, he, um, Apparently, Ali, uh, Cassius Clay's dad, Mr. Clay, um, did, had a had a sideline in street painting and had um, had uh, painted some uh, Terrell. Thank you. Um, the uh, the other fighter um, in street painting and um, uh, Leon's family that had run the funeral home, which was one of the most prestigious businesses you could have in Black America. Um, uh, had bought one of the paintings. So many years later, and they'd known, right, Cassius Clay as a little boy. Um, many years later, uh, Leon and uh, Muhammad were at an event where they were uh, both receiving some award. They hadn't seen each other in decades. And without thinking, Leon said, Cassius, it's so great to see you. And Muhammad Ali said, my name is Muhammad. And he never spoke to Leon again until the day he died. Uh, the, um, so NOI tells us a great deal. I mean, so you're already alienated from your family. You're already alienated from your community. Um, if you view dead naming as magically damaging to you, which is a tenet of Nation of Islam thought, that, mere, that being called the wrong name somehow is, it's not just offensive, it's spiritually injurious. So NOI had some pretty elaborate theories about the space stuff that um, I, uh, I probably could go into more, but... Um, Focusing on the other developments we see in American space religion, of course, the religion you've all been waiting for is Scientology. Um, and Scientology, it's got the prison planet, it's got the multiple inhabited things. Finally, somebody writes about the ghost soldiers from Neptune that Sandino had been preaching about in 1926. Uh, it's got it all, right? There's, um, and although there are sort of powerful divinities, what's interesting here is that it's with Scientology that God is pushed off the top. God is brought down a few pegs in original Mormonism. 
he's brought down a few pegs in Nation of Islam who argue that Wallace Fard is God and that God is just a, um, you know, a, a really competent guy uh, who, uh, similar to, uh, uh, similar to Brigham Young's Adam God heresy. But we see no overall structuring God in Scientology. We see a magical universe that holds a lot of ideas together using pseudoscience, but there's no God on top. And this is clearly an innovation in American space religion that you can sustain a magical worldview without needing God. And that's because of course, everything, all the magic is redescribed as pseudoscience. Now, oh, I'm sorry, one thing before I leave NOI and original Mormonism. Both of these religions taught that we have a pre-existent soul that enters the body, that the body and soul are not created at the same moment, but that the soul has a pre-existence. And both NOI and Mormonism argue that the one of the few attributes uh, a soul has inherent in its nature is gender. Souls are male or female before they enter the body. Now, we don't have that feature in uh, Scientology. We have a much more complex set of ideas about the immaterial soul. It has all kinds of attributes. It's had all kinds of experiences uh, prior to showing up where you are. What I think we really want to take out of Scientology as we look at the development of American space religion is first, it's godlessness. But secondly, it's extreme behaviors concerning people who try to leave the faith. Uh, that um, NOI merely creates a situation where you don't have a community to go back to. Uh, and as long as you don't denounce NOI, you're basically allowed to leave. Obviously, if you leave and denounce it, well, you know what happened to Malcolm X. They, they just kill you. But uh, in the case of Scientology, we see the building of networks um, where Scientologists throughout uh, hold positions of power throughout American society. And they're notified of people who are trying to leave the faith so that they can sabotage those people's home lives, so that they can sabotage those people's professional lives, so that they can engage in targeted campaigns of harassment uh, that um, can destroy your career in Hollywood, right? Um, the uh, if you've never joined Scientology, you don't get in trouble. But if you leave Scientology, uh, you should leave Hollywood. Uh, Tom Cruise will uh, ruin your life. Um, this uh, uh, this sense then that that there that apostates don't merely suffer in hell, 
they must suffer on earth is, um, is an interesting element we see in, uh, in Scientology. And it's an aspect that has escalated in NOI um, following um, the split between Elijah Muhammad's son and Louis Farrakhan. Uh, Farrakhan's NOI um, doesn't have the kind of power Scientology does because it goes for poor black people, not rich white people. But uh, um, we see the same kinds of targeted harassment, lifelong targeted harassment um, against apostates from NOI. Um, so I think we, we want to recognize that in some ways, um, wokeness elaborates key elements of uh, American space religions. One is it has a clear theory of race. Um, and it's an ahistoric theory of race. Um, when wokeness used to be called intersectionality, um, one of the central criticisms scholars had of intersectionality was that it retrojected race into the past. It suggested that race was a permanent feature of civilization and not historically contingent. That um, your um, that your race um, uh, that that everybody possessed race at all times and places. That's what the theory implied. This universalization of race is especially important. Um, now, I was going to say more about eugenics today until I realized this was the last class, uh, but it's useful to think about um, um, another social movement that really saw race as a universal, right? The eugenics movement, universal, timeless, uh, and in some ways permanent, except not permanent. However, however savage the eugenicists were, like we want to remember um, an oft misinterpreted um, and willfully misinterpreted slogan of the residential school system and of Canadian eugenics programs, which was kill the Indian to save the child. In other words, what was holding a person back was their race. And that if their race could somehow be removed from them, they could flourish. Now, optimistic eugenicists tended to believe that um, you um, that you could remove race from individuals while they were alive. Uh, the Mormon mission to the Catawba Indians was an example of one of many sets of missions to indigenous people um, that came back and reported that um, uh, the, the people who had converted, their skin had turned whiter. Um, and that's actually a thing your eyes do. We, we, race is so hard, is so, it's such powerful software that if you start talking to someone and they speak back to you with a Hispanic accent, your brain will start coloring their face in and making it slightly darker. 
that's just, um, that's the power of race in our thinking. So it was very easy for eugenicists to witness this. A lot of people were spray hosed down with chlorine bleach at this time uh, in the 20s when eugenics was going on. Now, optimistic eugenicists went, well, get people convert to Christianity, uh, improve their water treatment systems, and uh, teach them uh, and get them eating European foods, and they'll, they'll, they'll be white in 20 years. Um, pessimistic eugenicists, of course, went, no, we can't have. That's not going to happen. That's not realistic. That's not how natural selection works. We're going to use we're going to use the sexual selection component of evolution that Darwin propounded in Descent of Man in 1871, and we're just going to sterilize people who are the wrong race or have other problems, right? And that's what we remember about the eugenics movement. Now, the theory of race that is in wokeness is in many ways, although the wokes also practice eugenics, interestingly enough, but the theory underpinning it is really the opposite. Um, one of the articles I wrote uh, when uh, so to sort of signal my departure from the whole woke scene was I asked this question, does Todd Palin exist? Uh, now, for those of you who don't uh, remember the 2008 election very well, Todd Palin was the much more interesting Palin uh, in the presidential race. Um, Sarah Palin, uh, of course, uh, it was uh, his uh, wife. Uh, Todd Palin uh, was an Alaskan Eskimo um, who, um, I mean, he's not, he's really Tlingit, but they, they use the word Eskimo differently there. Um, but, uh, anyway, he, um, he's an indigenous Alaskan who, um, until very shortly before the 2008 election had been an activist in the Alaskan separatist party. Um, and the thing is that Palin didn't see himself as indigenous. He saw himself as an Alaskan and he saw himself as being part of a big culture of Alaskans who, are semi-sedentary, who have guns, who enjoy shooting the guns, who, you know, um, have a kind of live free or die social contract. In other words, he, his conception, he didn't see himself as an indigenous person. He saw, and that's why he and his family did not rejoin um, the indigenous community when they finally halted indigenous termination in Alaska. In Alaska, um, uh, they, had they had terminated indigenous status, you know, way, way back in the day in the 1890s, but they didn't restore it until the 1970s. Indigenous status was restored everywhere else in America in 1933, but it was not restored in Alaska until the 70s. And when indigenous people were given the opportunity to rejoin their indigenous communities, including getting free land and money, two thirds did not. They were much happier being part of a majority society called Alaskan 
which actually seem to have values more consistent with their indigenous heritage than these new indigenous governmental corporations that were created in the 1970s. Now, the way wokes would understand this is that Todd Palin doesn't even exist. He is a victim of cultural genocide. He has been killed, right? He doesn't identify as indigenous. He doesn't uh, describe any of his behaviors as indigenous. And uh, he's a happy English speaker and Alaskan separatist. Um, so the problem, and so what's interesting, right, is that whereas the eugenicists of the 1920s would argue that the only way for indigenous people to survive would be for them to shed all of the cultural trappings of their indigeneity. According to modern wokes, if you, you have to maintain those cultural trappings or you're a victim of the genocide, you no longer really exist. Uh, and we see this with all sorts of woke stuff around race. The worst thing you can do, uh, right? You have to, wokes love non-white people, provided those non-white people don't act too white. Uh, that, that cultural distance has to be maintained. And then the wokes propound this doctrine that the experience of people of other races is unknowable to us, that we can never really understand it, that the novelistic consciousness of the enlightenment that's designed for putting yourself in other people's shoes is now described as sinful. It's cultural appropriation. It's genocidal to write a play which contains an indigenous character whose thoughts you narrate if you're not indigenous. The entitlement to write such a play lives not in the brain, not in one's empathy, but in the blood. And this idea of the, the stay in your lane theory of race is, um, is a powerful one. Um, yeah, uh, Francesco, you're about to say something? Sorry, I just, I just really, really, but you can pretend to be them. I mean, you can pretend to, you still have the ability to pretend to be black or indigenous, um, claim that ancestry. I just want to throw that yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, no, that absolutely is the case. And it's really interesting how those claims are not questioned until the moment someone does something else wrong. And then the claim is suddenly questioned. And that's an interesting structural feature. Now, none of those people think they're deceiving people exactly. Um, they're often just making wild inferences in a self-serving manner. Um, that, oh, I feel so Indian, I must be, you know, that sort of thing. It, um, so yes, there are these paradoxes of impersonation and failure of imagination. But what's clear is, that there's actually a really powerful anger at people who don't stay in their racial lane. 
And for me, that came crashing in uh, as part of my journey away from whatever this thing is that that's the left now, of course, with the, uh, the church arsons. Um, many, uh, I, I had heard when I was organizing for the Eco-Socialist Party, a failed political project, I, um, I had gotten into an argument with uh, the president of the party um, because um, she stated that no indigenous people went to church. I'm like, but you can't, you can't, you can't let indigenous, you can't, you can't let an indigenous person see you going to a church. They'll know you're genocidal. It's like, you do know that according to the census, this is the second most Christian group of Canadians, right? And of course, those people don't, they're not really Indians. Um, they're victims of the genocide. They're effectively non-persons. Uh, and we saw that anger boil over because it was pretty clear the mass, the year of the graves was a year where there was, you know, flags at half mass, people crying and vomiting and breaking the plastic ashtrays. But the main act of violence associated with it was to target indigenous Christians with a set of KKK style church burnings, the like of which we hadn't seen since the American South in the 60s and 70s. Um, interestingly, um, it was not just indigenous people because there were uh, attempted church arsons in cities uh, where uh, you didn't tend to have uh, strongly branded indigenous Christian churches. So in the cities, they went after the most Christian demographic, Filipinos. Um, and uh, so there were a number, of, uh, there were, I think, three uh, Filipino churches uh, were set fire to um, during this experience. And what it tells us, right, is that um, we're reminded of an idea of Jonathan Z. Smith, that of all of the forms of difference that offend people, the most offensive is too much like us. These people are like me in the wrong way and I find it upsetting. Uh, so I think we see a very, very strong theory of American space, religion, race. And of course we see that with gender, with the pre-existent gendered souls that are born into the wrong body with increasing frequency, um, all that sort of stuff. Um, now, what we lack in what, what uh, now, of course, some people would question, and then, then, oh yeah, sorry, the other feature being Scientology level harassment of apostates. Nobody is more severely harassed than a detransitioner. Um, they are expelled from their community. If they detransition, they lose all of their trans friends. Uh, they've often already lost their family because of the original transition and the dead naming and all that sort of stuff. Um, and they often look kind of weird because they're victims of serious medical malpractice. And, um, but if you go on social media and a detransitioner pops their head up, 
the rage that is reserved for them that the rest of us canceled folks don't have to live through is truly shocking. And it's, um, and it, in, and of course, the, the first thing that's claimed is you were never trans. You only did this. You only hurt yourself to hurt us. Um, it's bizarre, right? You only hurt yourself to hurt us. Um, it, uh, but of course you don't, I mean, detransition is the most extreme form of apostasy. Obviously, you know, uh, people like Sandra and me were activists on the left and uh, we certainly face various consequences of our apostasy up to the present. Um, uh, obviously, if you have a career or, or kids, it's much scarier because as with Scientologists, the wokes are, are using Scientologists like tactics, but they're thicker on the ground, particularly in the caring professions. So defying them um, puts your child at risk of apprehension they might have a contact in that social worker's office. And all they need to do is say, um, well, this person's uh, parents have become far right extremists uh, and um, they, they can't be trusted to look after their child anymore. And uh, anyway, that's uh, one of the reasons I don't live in Prince George. It was to protect um, my um, ex's uh, custody of her kids which they immediately threatened uh, the second time I defied them. So yes, they took my job, but uh, they did not get my ex's kids. Uh, but that, those, are, those are the stakes. And it is very much like Scientology uh, boundary maintenance. Because if you have never been one of them, you face very few consequences. Um, First of all, you probably exist in a social and economic milieu that is distant from them. But even if you don't, um, people who have always held views that are now described as conservative on gender or race, um, views that were socialist five minutes ago, um, if you've never... Um, if you've never been part of this thing that the woke movement traces its lineage through, um, you can denounce and defy them um, and come out relatively unscathed most of the time. Nothing bad has happened to Jordan Peterson. Uh, I mean, he's had a, you know, he takes a lot of, you know, a lot of people shout at him and whatever, but they, uh, it's only now, finally, that they're going after his license to practice psychology um, at a time when he isn't practicing psychology and it has nothing to do with his income stream. Uh, there are actually very few consequences for merely being an opponent of the wokes. It's apostasy that upsets them and gets the, and activates this Scientology-like cancellation mechanism. So we have race, we have gender, we have boundary maintenance, all of which are highly consistent with American space religion. What, um, what of course we don't have is space. 
Um, there are no apparent extraterrestrial woke doctrines. Um, while there are certainly pseudoscientific and magical doctrines concerning race and gender and the body, um, there are no ghost soldiers from Neptune coming to bail anybody out. And uh, so I think it's a really interesting question whether wokeness qualifies as an American space religion. Is it merely American space religion adjacent or is it itself the, the newest, the most novel evolution of American space religion? Uh, and, you know, tough to say, really. Um, I think uh, I, I did want to remark a bit uh, more about the, um, the reverse assumption eugenics, um, right? Because wokes do target the same people for sterilization that were targeted by the original eugenics movement. Indigenous people, gays, and people with um, neurological disabilities. Uh, they're prioritized for sterilization. The sterilization campaigns focus on them. Uh, but they're not being described as defective. Instead, they're described as privileged, as being part of a special oracular, uh, pe people have a privileged access to truth. Um, and, uh, and we see this more generally in woke ideology around forms of self-harm, uh, other forms of self-harm, often for other pharma-driven forms of self-harm. Uh, we largely view intravenous drug users as being in a similar class of, of having a special moral authority, a special kind of knowledge and special rights to hurt themselves unimpeded by the state. In fact, actively facilitated by the state, which is of course what we've done with anorexics and cutters and all of these people with problematic self-harming behaviors who, um, are suddenly told, look, if you just say that you were born in the wrong body, all of your self-harming behaviors are not only good, but they'll be facilitated and funded by the state. Um, the idea that the targets of the eugenics campaign are the elect, whether they're people who are transitioned or whether they're people who die of drug overdoses in the downtown east side, um, there does seem to be this way in which by making the victims of eugenics something like a new monastic class, a new kind of special person who one can recognize by sight as having a distinctive role in the religion, I think we, we can go very much back to when I was talking about the early female monasteries, which did the same thing, but based on concern for these girls' health, not based on the idea that the self-harm was actually the good thing. So, um, uh, so again, 
I think that, um, you know, is, is this a eugenics movement? Functionally, it is. Ideologically, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to say. But uh, certainly we have these, these different aspects uh, swirling around in all this. So I think this is, this is pretty much all the stuff I wanted to convey in, in the course. The, um, uh, and uh, I'm sorry I was a little disorganized about the eugenics part, but of course eugenics, the original eugenics movement was not a religious one. And this one is making it uh, even more uh, confusing. So uh, on that note, questions or comments about stuff from today or from any episode this week, uh, this month. Uh, you need to unmute. Okay. Okay. Uh, Francisco? Yeah, go ahead, Cheryl. I'll wait. Oh, okay. Um, in the 70s, there was a song called um, I Think I'm Turning Japanese, I Really Think So. And the guy said the reason why um, what the song was about was that there was so much Japanese te technology uh, being used, they felt that they were being becoming Japanese. And can you, I, I know it's a bit of a leap here, but um, if someone can say uh, technology can give you a race, and if you zoom up to where we are right now, um, with the whole gender thing, um, pharma, and technology is used to move people into another gender. And um, it just strikes me like this stuff has been around for a long time, but it just seems to have gotten um, critical mass and in pop popular culture to, to a degree that uh, we've not seen before. And um, how you, kind of um, get a handle on it, it is uh, really confusing to me, but I'm seeing like certain amount of resistance happening in terms of the, the latest would be the swimmer. Oh yes, I mean, Riley uh, Gaines who was yeah. beaten up, yes. Um, yeah, I, 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 so a few points, just because um, you've already raised two things and I wanna, I wanna answer the, the first two parts of what you said before, <laughs> before I forget some of it. Um, okay, so first of all, the song Turbin Turning Japanese, right, is um, uh, uh, leads me to a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, Turning Japanese is a play, it's a complex play on um, facial expressions because it's about both the rise of Japanese technology and about autoerotic activity. Um, this, uh, uh, the turning Japanese refers to a facial expression of people engaged in autoerotic activity, as well as um, this Japanese tech element, except those things are actually really close together starting in the 70s, because um, I haven't spoken to Japanese culture and all this because it's, it wasn't especially relevant to the themes I wanted to explore in this course. But so let's recognize, so one of the things that you will see with um, 
the trans women who lead the most, shall we say, phallocentric lives, um, where, um, right, they're autogynophiles who eroticize their own body in extreme ways. Um, Often, um, I don't know whether you, you've seen this in people's Twitter bios, but you will notice the, um, you'll see assigned Futanari at birth. Uh, that's a, uh, refers to a particular genre of Japanese pornography that became very popular in um, North America starting in the 1980s. Um, which depicts um, uh, teenage girls with very large breasts and enormous penises. Um, this uh, is a, was a tremendously popular porn genre in Japan for quite a while. And it went through, this is actually one of the things I, um, and I made a dystopian game about the present day in 2002, I, um, I actually bet on this, that this Futanari identity, the identifying as a teenage girl with a large penis, um, would become a huge hit in North American popular culture, as indeed it has. Uh, that these Japanese pornographic genres have reshaped our imaginary in crucial ways. How have they been able to do that? Well, one of the ways, of course, is the rise of the internet and the ability to share these things, for these things to escape Japan, get onto Usenet, and suddenly they're not in comic books being read on the train by Japanese businessmen, they're everywhere. And it's at the same time that those things are spreading that we have the big dance of the seven veils experiment that is Yahoo, which you'll recall in the original Yahoo Instant Messenger, whereas MSN and ICQ and everybody else are trying to stop impersonation. Um, the uh, Chinese Sufis running Yahoo ask you to make seven of yourself, each one with a different image, each one with a different gender began noticing these Futanari images showing up as people's profile pictures for one of their seven Yahoo identities. So one of the things that, um, uh, that we can see there is um, um, there's this appropriation of a very sexually bizarre culture uh, globally. At the same time, as people are virtualizing their identity of, of, of coming to believe that their true self is their online self. And that um, this world that we're physically sharing is an inferior or less important reality. And you have a you know, generation of kids who are spending more time online than in the physical world. So they start to see it as being more real because functionally in their experience, in their lived experience, it is more real. It, has, it takes up more of their time, shapes their awareness more, is the location of all kinds of social rewards and consequences that never appear in the physical world at all. So um, Turning Japanese is quite an important song. It, uh, it uh, did, did not merely uh, describe, but presaged uh, 
the uh, the the world that exists now. So uh, anyway, I'm sorry. Just I had to connect the tech thing and the Japanese art thing before I I forgot. <laughs> what were you What were you uh, What were you wanting to end on, Cheryl? Well, it, I was going to say that um, Japanese um, art actually had influenced um, the the impressionist because Japan had been isolated. And um, when the uh, Europeans were, were heading into Japan and um, they were bringing things back, the, uh, I guess the China or ceramics were wrapped in paper and the art was flat, like graphic art. So it had a, a like you just have to look at paintings and you can see that kind of influence. I had no idea about the other one. All I knew was the technology. So really learned something today. <laughs> yeah, you'll never enjoy the song again. Uh, Francisco. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess two, two things. Um, the first one, when you started talking about Scientology and, and the space and space religions, and you talked about this progression of, of, of religion from more reducing the role of God or the deity. And is the, the meter sort of slowly went in the direction more of um, removal from, from that higher deity into, until you, it was distilled. If I can use that word to Scientology, where there was more of the individualistic self-improvement um element which was which was that seemed to be the the key part of seems to be the key part of Scientology you know it's sort of that Anthony Robbins kind of kind of self-improvement um, obsession um, and and that sort of seemed interesting to me in in, in the de, in the development of of that wokeness and and how how that became you know controlling the individual and how that that particular philosophy, if you want to call it, being Scientology, sort of be, came to that point where they were so individualistic and had removed themselves from what other religious peoples had had the connection to to a deity before. That you started to to develop that um, that apostate kind of um, going after individuals. Um, the actress that was on, um, I can't remember the television show now, she did a lot of sort of anti-Scientology stuff. Um, I can't just, I can't remember her name at the moment, but it sort of seemed interesting that that was, that was sort of a, a linear progression and a distillation. Is that accurate in any way? Um, I, I mean, right. Scientology uses the rhetoric of individualism, um, to run a uh, to run an autocratic uh, faith that is completely pyramidal in structure, and um, it's it's individualistic in terms of achievement, not in terms of thought right. or or anything like that. So, I think Scientology certainly appropriated American bootstrapism in a way that no other space religion has. Um, the, the, the bootstrap motivational speaker part, um, we saw, you see a bit of that with Nation of Islam, with talking about uh, commercial and financial success being important, self-discipline being important. So there's a bootstrapping element to both NOI and Scientology. And it's interesting that that bootstrapping discourse 
The flip side of it is the most extreme boundary maintenance practices. Those are not things that you would logically pair in an ideology. Um, and wokeness, it lacks a bootstrapping component. It largely is a fatalistic religion uh, that believes that these intersections that exist in intersectionality are really what governs your life. Um, because you've also got the, it sort of seems within capitalism as well, is this distillation to the individual, like, like a, who am I on Instagram and Facebook and the sort of siloing that that happens, you know, you're whirling dervish at the bottom that, you know, we're sort of expected to be within, within capitalism, if I can say that, um, that there seems to see, be a sort of parallel course with religion, but also with economic thought and our individual role within um, um, the larger capitalist picture. I wonder if there's a connection there. Well, I, I would suggest that one of the reasons we see um, wokeness stepping back from the bootstrapism of the space religions of the Eisenhower era is um, uh, is supportive of my, I mean, my, my some, most of my theories about this stuff are, you know, class analysis. This is just fun for me to do the religion part. So um, I really, I grow more and more confident in Darcy Pocklington's revision of Marxism all the time, which is that um, we are not dealing, the, the wokes are not the owner class. They are the commissars. And that what we are living through is something like Lenin's seizure of power, that the Democratic Party is the party of the commissars. The Republican Party is the party of the owners. Um, one of the ways that you can detect a commissar billionaire versus a... Uh, uh, a, a conventional bourgeois billionaire is that a commissar will take a big hit on their taxes um, to pay themselves a salary for their expertise, even if that is an economic, a financially irrational thing to do. They'll engage in all kinds of other large scale financial exploitation and profiteering but they'll insist on getting a salary and uh, for a significant portion of their wealth uh, because uh, rather than just accepting this wealth as capital gains. And that's because it's very important to the ideology of commissars that, expert, that what makes them special is their expertise, their knowledge, their ability to manipulate that knowledge. The commissar class is no friend of the free market. Uh, it believes that free markets are chaotic, that like ecosystems, there is simply too much randomness and chaos in a free market. And that what we really need is progressive solutions to the market where you have managed oligopolies and managed monopolies. Um, where, it, um, where it's of secondary importance who even owns them, what matters is who the commissars are who manage them. Um, we, um, we see this big time right now in the, the, um, the bill before, <coughs> before parliament on um, video and audio content on the internet. Um, 
right? The move is, I mean, the, the sticking point, the thing that is making the senators Trudeau himself appointed fight with him is his insistence that of leaving a big hole in the bill going, this stuff will be determined later by the CRTC, they will be enforced by the CRTC, and we're not going to tell you what's in this part of the bill at all. We are just going to hand this to the expert regulators here who will actually make the final decisions. So yes, the rich can keep getting richer on these various platforms, but the power lives in the expert regulators. And so I think that the reason you don't have bootstrapping and wokeness is that it's, it's an ideology that is hostile to the free market. That's one of the reasons I think conservatives will constantly misattribute Marxism to wokeness because it shares Marxist hostility to the free market. And that that's why that that's the sleight of hand by which the East Bloc states came to power was people like Lenin, who, you know, I think Lenin probably was genuinely, uh, but, you know, people like Stalin certainly um, are people who shared with Marxists only the hatred of the market and precious little else. So um, I think we, we've dialed back from the bootstrapping because the class that is running wokeness doesn't like that discourse. It believes largely in a fatalistic system of predetermined outcomes that can only be changed through expert interventions in the economy. Interesting. And I, just briefly, just to make way, um, I also thought it was really interesting when you brought Malcolm X into the conversation because one of my favorite books is uh, Manning Marable's um, biography of, of Malcolm X. And I mean, the Nation of Islam had a full on PSYOP operation going on against Malcolm X. And every, I mean, they, they schooled the CIA in terms of PSYOPs and, and how to direct it towards Malcolm X. I mean, they really hated him. And I mean, they even had, they were even um, played a role with his autobiography that was written by the FBI um, to um, to destroy destroy his name, destroy his family and his lineage, and just confuse the entire history of Malcolm X. And it seems, I mean, I'm sure that that kind of thing was done in some way to people before Malcolm X, but certainly in the modern context, I think he was really the the proto um, um, apostate within sort of the modern way that psyops operate that wokes or a group that has a orthodoxy attack a person and completely change not only how they're interpreting reality but how that person is remembered you know just to completely destroy a person from their from the foundation of who they think they are and what's happening what's happening around them um, so I thought that was really interesting to, um, to bring him into the conversation. Yeah, and I think that, um, uh, right, there's an adjacent historical figure who 
does have the same experience at the hands of the FBI um, that um, that Nation of Islam figures out how to privatize, and that's Paul Robeson, right? And it's the same. It's the same thing. It's not. It's about the destruction of the of man's reputation and of his social circle, his mind, everything. Um, so, yeah, I think that um, I, I think yeah, something special is going on in the 50s where we see um uh in into the 60s where we see these pra- uh, these new practices that largely right the soviet union is ahead of america um and the of course scare. it's got it's got um and it, it's and of course it's installed uh, one of its operatives to run MA5 and uh, who then designs the CIA as an organization. Um, So there's this desperate sense on the part of American intelligence agencies to catch up. And we see that with, um, uh, we see that very much with Hoover's FBI. What's really interesting is that somehow that uh, it's that 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 contagion. How does that leap out of the government into a religious organization uh, that takes old practices of shunning and just takes them up to a completely different level? Um, yeah, and I, I think that uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot to be mined there from the Cold War. There are Mormons in the CIA, so yeah. I mean, they just had to, you know, move over a couple of doors, I guess, or go home and take all those tactics with them. But like with the Red Scare, and, and a lot of that happened with, um, um, in the United States, what the FBI was doing to, to people. Yeah, and what's, um, yeah. So I, uh, yeah. So it's a rich period that allows L. Ron Hubbard to build his system um, that uh, it's inspired from many directions. And I am a, I do largely, I have only one disagreement with Yuri Bezmenov's historical theory, which is that, um, which is what the what the KGB was trying to transmit. Uh, I do think that the fact that the KGB's budget was 85% spent on subversion of foreign populations, um, that's significant. That's, uh, the thing is that uh, Bezmenov, you know, toured the country as a surrogate for Reagan um, in 83, 84, saying, and the ideology that they're infusing into our universities and into civil society is Marxism-Leninism. And of course, the Soviet Union would be incapable of doing that. The only, the only thing it could transmit was the class consciousness of the commissar class. Uh, that um, our commissar class may have woken up and become restive and adversarial with the owner class, which which it had happily co-governed for a century um, because of these practices that we see all kinds of aspects of Soviet life just mysteriously welling up gradually in America after the subversion program has been going for about uh, 15 years. Uh, other questions or comments? 
Uh, just building on yeah. uh, what um, you and Francisco were talking about, are we seeing um, right now with uh, the thing that's going on between Justin Trudeau and the Trudeau Foundation, where within that uh, foundation, um, six of their board members resigned. So there's a problem within that, that group. And um, so far we haven't heard anything about the police or um, any kind of investigation. So they've got hands off, although it was the CSIS um, anonymous uh, officers that uh, began leaking information uh, to the Globe and Mail and I suppose, other um, journalists. And I'm wondering if um, they are trying to take him out um, and he's being done by his own class being taken out. Well, I know. I, I, I think these people are simply avoiding liability. Uh, I think they resigned from the foundation because they know that the foundation is as dirty as the Clinton Foundation. Uh, and... Uh, uh, my sense is that um, they don't, um, that corporate affairs is one of the very few areas of reserved provincial power. So that means that while criminal law is a federal responsibility in Canada, so nobody's going to go to jail for any of this stuff uh, as long as the liberals remain in power federally. However, um, if you have violated your fiduciary or other legal responsibilities as a director of a corporation, um, it's open season. The prosecution, you know, right, the person responsible for prosecuting you is Doug Ford, not Justin Trudeau. <laughs> uh, and so uh, I think that's that's what's going on there. There, these people. It's it's a simple risk management thing. They've known this thing was dirty the whole time. They've been doing a bunch of really greasy stuff, and um, now they're legally immunizing themselves so that um, uh, if uh, the Ford government appoints a special prosecutor, which you know, like. We've normalized that with Trump in New York. Uh, there's no, um, you know, of course, everybody sees virtue in having double standards today. But um, no, I, I think that that's just a, that's a straight uh, liability avoidance thing. And it's useful okay. to remember that the importance of financial crimes with hard to prosecute people. It's not just Al Capone, who's ultimately jailed for income tax evasion. Nobody could manage to get a rope around Conrad Black until eventually he went to jail because he failed to deliver profits to the shareholders, that he did not meet his fiduciary obligations. I had a friend who corresponded with him in jail, and I think he, this correspondence contains one of the most Conrad Black things that has ever been said, where Black goes, a lot of people don't seem to recognize that I won 85% of my case. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that, um, I think that, you know, there is, there's certainly a woke, um, I think there's a different set of values around um, 
enforceability of law in a woke worldview, right, in which certain people should be prosecuted, certain people shouldn't. But the problem is the board of the Trudeau Foundation doesn't meet the criteria of people who shouldn't be prosecuted, according to that scheme of values. It is basically just, you know, white Laurentian elite patricians sitting on that board. So they have no additional shield uh, other than the favoritism of the state. Although they have uh, the guy that uh, uh, Trudeau had tasked to do this report that everything was uh, oh, yeah. just fine. He was a director when this money came in. I know. And, <laughs> and the, the thing is like, uh, uh, it's like there's a, it, it, it appears there's a cover up in the foundation and also with Trudeau, it's sort of like uh, uh, one stone, two birds. And whether this is gonna fly and also the whole thing about wokeness, uh, the uh, Globe and Mail's, uh, uh, I guess it was an opinion talked about, there were too many intersections. And mm. I don't know if they were just having fun at the fact that um, the Trudeau government has said that they were, they were woke and uh, all their budgets everything was seen through the lens of intersectionality. And I, I think, you know, it, it's pouring out from uh, the government into the foundation, into the donor class. And I think a few heads are going to be taken. I think that, yes, I think the fact that, that the government of Ontario isn't going away is their, their biggest danger. But what I, I, um, but what I, I would say is that um, this, is not a, this is not how you'd run a cover-up. Right, a real cover-up covers things up. That's not what's going on here. Um, this is much more, an observation was made in 2012 about the Mitt Romney presidential campaign and how it actually radically changed how politics worked in America. And uh, this has trickled up into Canada, um, which was that Mitt Romney put no effort into making you believe his lies. He contracted out the work of believing his lies to his audience. Um, so, right, saying, hey, this guy who's been like a, a family friend and who we have all this financial business with, he's going to do a report, and I think you all know what the report's going to say. Right, that's, that's not a cover-up. That's a demonstration of power, of unapologetic power. The mass resignation from the foundation. Again, there's no effort to cover that up. Everybody can see the government is lying and hiding things. But as Tabitha Southey said of the Kavanaugh hearings, obvious lies are a show of power. Um, the, and the people who work on making this thing, on like trying to do a cover-up, right? They're, they're, they're Trudeau fans on Twitter. They're coming up with outlandish horseshit to make this stuff fly because the government's giving them no material. The government's giving them no material to actually make the lies work. These are perfunctory formulaic denials. They're not lies created with the intent of successfully misleading people. Um, and I think the success of Trump following the Romney campaign, where, right, where you move from a politics of 
popularity to a politics of fear um, where people tell obvious lies and brazen it out. Um, so I, I, yeah, so there, there is no cover up, and I'm sure that David Johnson's report um, will make very little effort to sell the lies it contains. And I think that that is the point. People are more responsive to politicians showing their invulnerability, their impunity, their power, than they are to politicians being persuasive these days. We've gone into phase two of an Italian Republic in the formulation of Machiavelli. It's like, is it better to rule by fear or by love? Well, the love will run out one day and you'll end up ruling by fear anyway. Uh, and I think that's, that's where we are in uh, our current trajectory. And that's where the commissar class, that's, that's their sweet spot, right? Just look at the dictatorships of Eastern Europe. Uh, none of them really sought to make their lies credible. They simply sought to make their lies powerful. Uh, other questions or comments? Any? Uh... Just quickly, I mean, in yeah. the prop. Sorry, Sandra. Um, in the propaganda process, I mean, the heavy lifting it seems to me has always been the self-propagandizing. Mm -hmm. The generation of the propaganda is simple and, and <clears throat> quite often um, non-apologetic. You know, in some ways, like you said, but it's it's the way that people are asked in a way to self-propagandize. That's where the most of that kind of convincing work sort of happens anyway. Yeah, and that and that tends to happen only when in a society has entered an authoritarian phase, right? We grew up on the Mulroney government, right? There you know, a lot of bad things you could say about Mulroney. He sold out the country. He was incredibly corrupt, but he was not an authoritarian. Um, and he's he didn't govern like an authoritarian. The Mulroney government cover-ups were complex. They were nuanced. They were faceted. They had multiple layers. They had contingency plans within their cover-ups. Um, and uh, they had people to sacrifice. There was a, there was a whole soft shoe routine there uh, that, uh, that, that we don't see anymore. Uh, it doesn't matter who the, what political party the prime minister is, there's always gonna be somebody who takes a bullet for, for a prime minister. Oh yeah, that that is unchanged. Uh, so There's an economic one. Sorry. Oh, machine. Your machine is being cruel to you, or had you not? Uh, <laughs> I, I I thought you you were about to say something. All right. Let's see here. Um, okay, well, while, uh, while that situation is addressed or, uh, or resolved, um, it's uh, uh, any, uh, any concluding thoughts, uh, Christine, as we won't be uh, meeting regularly for a while? Um, just minor things. Going back to that first class, I didn't mean to say that like that collab hymn is still in the hymn book. Oh, yeah. Um, I wasn't mean to, just, just the emphasis. And also, I think there had been a reference, you had made a reference to hundreds of wives or something, and that was just not something I'd heard before. Um, also, last class, this is just bringing up something that's probably of more interest to me, and so I don't want to take too much time. 
but you made a comment that Mormon women can't be interrupted. So that intrigued me. I didn't totally know what you meant. Um, Cause just recently I spent five and a half years as the president of the stake relief society. Mm-hmm. And so I'm totally into that women's organization. And it was news to me that the other women's organizations that came around at that time, most of them aren't around anymore. So that was fascinating to me too. And I yeah. tried to start looking around to find that out and would love more information on that. Uh, it's an observation. Um, this, uh, I, I'm thinking, uh, it was really like, it was a no, it was, a, so in the scene I fell into in the LDS church, um, uh, my, um, uh, it was, you know, this, um, this academic uh, seminar, and it was, there was such a difference, um, and it was really, it was immediately noticeable to me um, that um, uh, the Mormon women, you know, were much more able and willing to push back on men interrupting them conversationally in the very rhythm of conversation itself. And so we talked about this a bit and they talked about how disappointing it was to go to PhD programs in uh, other, uh, other places and see how much more easily cowed and dominated uh, other women in seminars were Uh, that. um, And, you know, the thing is that, that we, we do have a bunch of sociological research about how there are certain, there are certain forms of socialization among women that are impeded by co-educational environments. Um, that if you look at girls who go to private school, to elite private schools, you see similar things to non-elite uh, Mormon women in that these girls are not afraid of being interested in or good at math. They're not afraid of being interested in or good at chemistry. And they're used to being assertive in debates because there's no male audience there. So they don't have to demonstrate these female virtues of agreeability, submissiveness, all of that stuff. But at the same time, they're also not being bombarded by the behavior of adolescent males that is insanely aggressive. And, um, right, so it's the, this good thing is being reinforced and this bad thing is being taken away. And one of the things we found, study after study shows, girls do better in, in, uh, in single sex education and boys do better in mixed education. So further evidence that we're a patriarchy, there are no single sex public schools uh, because the public system, as much as it's let boys down in some strange ways lately, um, is largely put together uh, to benefit male male learners. So yeah, it's a, um, and so when, if you don't have the good fortune to be sent away to an elite boarding school that's single sex, the next best thing you can have developmentally as a girl is um, a single sex time in your week. Um, That's not constituted based on doing something for men or with men or anything, but it's just a space where women can engage with each other. And, um, and it's, um, 
you know, people, people will look at like the letter of the law and go, well, I mean, just the fact that this thing is called the Relief Society, how demeaning, blah, blah, blah. It's like, what it does is way more important than what it's called. Uh, doesn't matter that it's still got a strange 19th century name that suggests an auxiliary function. Um, it's a parallel leadership path um, in which you do not have to directly compete with males. And, um, and of course, there are all kinds of stereotypes about female versus male leadership that, again, become irrelevant in a single sex space. Uh, the assumption that the leader will be male, all of those things, they fall away once you actually segregate. So, um, yeah, anyway, those, uh, those are my, my main thoughts on that front. Thank you. That's fascinating. That's fascinating to hear. And then it's also interesting, too, to take it into the broader context of, of gender ideology and fighting for women's spaces due to safety. And I have felt this all along, that we're dabbling with something deeper than, I mean, sa- Physical safety is huge, but we're pressing against something that's that's even deeper than that. And so what you just described is very, very interesting because there's definitely a space from the time that girls turn 12. There is a separate organization for the girls and they're yeah. on their own. So very interesting. No, what are one of the things wokeness is doing is it's burning the red tent. That's that's what's happening because it's declared war on all single sex female spaces. Oh. Uh, I'm just gonna. Um, so uh, yeah, I think that's highly significant that there's um, there's an aspect of uh, of this. Uh, and, I, and I appreciate you noticing that it's it's nice to have someone else's observation because. I mean, I'm a, <laughs> I stayed at home, raised six kids. I would be the, the, um, oh, what am I trying to say? The stereotype of a supposedly oppressed woman. And I, I get that feeling, you know, from people, but it's not what I have experienced. And so it's interesting to hear that. Yeah. The, um, I mean, I think it's, it's really interesting, right. That they're, that the thing wokes are most likely to go to court over um, is uh, is women defending those boundaries. It's not just the thing they're most likely to become violent over. Um, every possible thing, right? The <clears throat> yes, this this effort, the the efforts to sue every lesbian dating site into the ground uh, is uh, that's pretty significant. That even for that limited portion of the population in that one very small space, the mere existence of women's space is, um, is understood to be an existential threat. If there's women's space anywhere, the job is not done. Sandra. I, I think that's, uh, I have a copy and I don't know where it came from of the playbook for the uh, TRAs. Mm. And that they say explicitly, the whole thing is about taking over women's spaces, taking over women's organizations, doing it by any means possible, warning that you may do uh, time for the crime, but 
you have to take over women's spaces. So it's got nothing to do with human rights or any other things that they pretended to be about. I went to an all-girl high school, and I really value that. Um, it wasn't a private school. It was a Catholic school that uh, was, uh, and the boys were in the same building. So we didn't see any males until noon, till lunchtime. <laughs> Uh, and we shared the gym with them and other things. And uh, we used to get half the gym and they got the whole gym. And I had a big fight with the athletic uh, teacher uh, in, in the boys school uh, who happened to be Roly Miles, actually. <laughs> Do you know Roly Miles? <laughs> anyway, he was a quarterback for the uh, Edm previous team called the Edmonton Eskimos. And uh, that it was unfair, unjust that we only had half the gym. And we we did get the whole gym out of the fight. So that was a good thing. But anyway, um, I, I think that it's really true that, that it isn't just uh, for safety that we need our own spaces, but we need, uh, we need like amazing things happen when women get together in our own spaces. I mean, it's just, it's quite... Um, and I think that we need that affirmation uh, when we're living in the patriarchy because we're always measured in expected to buy into the male paradigm in order to exist. And it's only from being in our spaces, our spaces, that we can develop uh, the analogous, the analysis and the strategies uh, to um, create our liberation. So I think that that's very important. Getting when I was thinking about the uh, the Ford Foundation, if a board has been found to be uh, fiduciarily negligent, uh, resigning is not a um, a protection from that. True, true. It it gets them more distance, but it doesn't get them out. No. I would suggest uh, we may see a number of them change their jurisdiction of residence following this to further uh, get away from uh, from this. I imagine they might, you know, stay in their summer homes in the Gulf Islands or the Thousand Islands for a while, uh, you know, just to keep their heads down so that they don't look like targets of opportunity when um, uh, when the axe comes down. Yeah. It's very it rare. In fact, I can't think of any instance where a board has been held accountable for anything. No, there's uh, there's uh, there's very uh, there's very bad law on this here. I mean, I think we live in one of the worst jurisdictions because um, we nerfed uh, pretty much all um, all regulation of nonprofits in British Columbia um, because of the Khalistan conflict. Um, these different factions of Sikh temples took each other to court. Uh, the courts were deluged in documents that they couldn't translate very easily, placed in a cultural context they didn't really understand. And of course, um, there were still like militant Khalistanis who occasionally, you know, killed elites in India or China and uh, sorry, India or Canada. And uh, there's a good slip. Um, so the courts in BC, at least, basically went, no, all we will ever do is order a new meeting. 
It's the only order we'll ever make. We're not going to try and figure out who's done what or what's gone wrong. We're not going to try and, you know, compensate anybody. And uh, and then, of course, this also that has this confluence with, um, you know, W.R. Bennett and Doman and the VSE turning into, you know, it's not like this money laundering thing in BC is new. It's just that, you know, we got it out of mining and into real estate. Uh, but the criminality there at the VSE, again, tremendous pressure from above um, for the courts to not engage with um, irresponsibility and for-profit corporations. So yeah, I think we got a bunch of, I think these are mostly, has mostly been a dead letter. I think the only reason that the Trudeau Foundation people are in any danger is because the rules of engagement are changing right now. And the idea that um, you do targeted political prosecutions, um, something the United States has habituated itself to over 30 years, that's now, I think, in, at risk of becoming part of our social mores here as well. So I think that would be the reason they're afraid is that they, um, the idea that, um, you know, the state broadcaster works at arm's length or the cops work at arm's length. Those ideas are disappearing from our values. And uh, so, yeah, they, so, I mean, it's hard to know whether the courts will just continue to not care or uh, whether there'll be a new, more politicized engagement. I have a question about the Mormon uh getting rid of the race thing. Uh, um, when I was living in uh, in Utah in the 70s, um, black people could not go to heaven. Mm -hmm. And uh, I needed a transfusion in the hospital and there was no blood available that was, you had to ensure uh, that the, the donor uh, had no black blood in them in in the hospitals in Utah. So people at uh, at my husband's work had to donate the blood so that we'd know it was pure and I wouldn't be tainted and consequently uh, not get into heaven because of it. And there were several black people who belonged to that religion, which I could never quite figure out. <laughs> but anyway, I'm I'm wondering how, that's how entrenched it was in the seventies. So you've got all of these people that believe that black people uh, are uh, not qualified to get into heaven. How do you, how do you all of a sudden change the rule on that and have people go along with it? Well, Mormon boundary maintenance behavior is something that has evolved steadily. It, it there the number of different boundary maintenance strategies the LDS have had over the two hundred years is yeah I guess this is what are we like a day or two from the 200th anniversary of the first vision. Um, it's gotta be anyway. So we're like, uh, anyway, so the, wow. Um, so there's a very significant thing that really establishes what allows the LDS to turn on a dime in the seventies over race. And it's the polygamy conflict, uh, right? Cause there's this point where um, the church initially 
tries to deal with the anti-polygamy stuff by going underground and starting up in other countries that haven't criminalized polygamy. Of course, in Canada, we do our standard Wilfrid Laurier bait and switch. We invite the Mormons in, tell them that polygamy is legal here. And then as soon as they've invested their money in Cardston and built the temple, we go, oh, no, we were just joking, <laughs> which was uh, how we dealt with the Mennonites, the Hutterites, the Dukabors, you name it. Uh, it uh, so the initial strategy by Wilfred Woodruff in the 1890s fails. And then there is Utah chief's statehood and there's the seating of Reed Smoot, the Utah Senator. And so Utah sends its, uh, its uh, first Republican Senator because the, uh, the prophet switches sides, the Democrats were the party of Mormonism in the 19th century. The Republicans became the party in the 20th century based on some high level deals. Joseph F. Smith, who's then the, the prophet, um, really wants Reed Smoot seated in the Senate. And what becomes evident during these, I think it's two and a half years of hearings they hold about whether to honor the election result from Utah, what becomes clear is that the primary objection is that the church is um, only pretending to have backed off polygamy um, and that it's not enforcing the anti-polygamy statutes and that this is a giant problem. So the church realizes that if it wants to not go back to war with the US government, it is going to have to use its own power its own organization to enforce anti-polygamy, that it will have to use not just all the governments in Utah that it controls, but it has to use its own religious leaders to do surveillance, to do reporting, to do whatever. And so the church effectively becomes in the 1920s um, a strident anti-polygamy organization. And the way it does that rhetorically is by saying that there is no doctrine that if you're a true Mormon, you defer to the will of the quorum, irrespective of what the church has said before, that there is no principle in Mormonism, not even the principle of celestial marriage, that trumps the principle of obedience to the president the first presidency and the quorum. Well, this creates a big split, right? It takes, I mean, they're still working on it. Like there are still 25,000 polygamists left um, who face constant legal harassment. Uh, but the church splits and there are initially a lot of polygamists. And so the central thing about more the Mormon identity in Utah, less so other places where they hadn't had the tradition of polygamy, the Mormon identity in Utah becomes um, turning on a dime doctrinally because of your respect for the church's decision-making process. And so all of that is all queued up in the 70s. The campaign against the polygamists is still ongoing. And so it's very easy for them to use the same rhetorical strategy with race and to just say, well, you're not a real Mormon if you don't uh, go along with this revision of doctrine. 
Um, how could you be a Mormon if you're defying the presidency like this? The other way they do it is similar to polygamy as well in that the revelation received from God is not in the scripture. There is a press release about a revelation from God having been received and a statement about what the consequences of that revelation are. It's the same with race. They don't say the curse of Ham is not true. Black people are fully ensouled. They don't say that. They say the quorum has received a revelation that we will not be printing here. And as a consequence of that revelation, we are admitting black people fully to the priesthood. So it could be in both revelations that God said to the quorum, look, guys, you're not going to get away with this. Just pretend to have gone along and we'll sort it out later. That is a totally legit way of thinking about those revelations. Uh, proclamation on the family, even though it doesn't officially, I think, have full revelation status, um, right? The, um, the anti-gay marriage thing. No, it's a whole beautifully written thing about what God's opinion is. It's not, it's, it's not these, this sort of terse press release. God said something to us. Now we have to do this. So I think for people who went along with the anti-polygamy thing, because they thought that this was just God advising a strategic retreat, they can interpret the race thing that way. Um, for people who went along with the polygamy thing because they bought the explanation that the supremacy, that the continual revelation of doctrine combined with the supremacy of the quorum meant that turning on a dime doctrinally at the advice of the quorum is, is part of what Mormonism is. In fact, it's the essential characteristic. Um, but that actually didn't take out the racism at a grassroots level uh, nearly as effectively as removing all race from the Book of Mormon itself. So the recall of the scripture and its replacement with non-racist scripture that's the thing that really I think was most effective in producing the long-term change. The last thing I'll say about this, which you know is totally just an inside baseball thing because I never get to talk about it. What the quorum was responding to was not events in the United States. What the quorum was responding to was the imminent declaration of an independent autocephalic Brazilian Mormon church. Um, Brazil is a highly white supremacist society, more so than the United States. Um, and, uh, it, um, and so the Book of Mormon had been going like gangbusters there. The missionaries weren't even having to sell, uh, having to take the book to the door. People were just going, hey, these missionaries gave me this amazing book. Check this out. And people were passing it around. And pretty, and Brazil also has a lower color line. So there are a lot of people in Brazil that we would not think of as white that thought of themselves as white who joined. And so this was just going to turn into a massive fiasco. Um, so they sent the big heavy hitter enforcer from the quorum down there, Bruce McConkie. Uh, and McConkie took stock of the situation, 
met with a number of the missionaries. I have a friend who was one of the missionaries McConkie met with while they were trying to figure out how to respond to the developments in 1970s Brazil. And um, yeah, and McConkie, who had been the strongest defender of Mormon ideas of race, that's why they put him on the file, that he would do the Nixon in China 180 degree turn in one day. And McConkie has to come home and sell this thing he's been denouncing for 40 years. Um, it's a, anyway, it was a, it's a really interesting moment in American religious history that is, it's just got a crazy number of dimensions. Ah, anyway, uh, I see it's one thirty. <laughs> Shall I let you guys go? I want to say thank you, uh, Stuart, for running the course. Um, it really helped uh, give me a little bit of a frame to to view uh, what's going on out in the world. And and I don't have any answers, but I'm, I'm sure the penny will start to drop. At least I'm hoping. And that um, I hope that you run some more courses. And it was really nice to meet everybody in the class. Right back, right back at you. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm certainly. I got a, I got a, I got some new energy for running some uh, new courses. So uh, send me, uh, send me suggestions uh, uh, for anything you might want there. Yeah, and thanks to everybody for enduring my run on, running on, run on questions. I appreciate that. Sorry to take so much space. They're the best kind of questions. Uh, I think okay. uh... yeah. <clears throat> no complaints from here. And thank you, Stuart. Oh. I still have to catch up on the parts that I missed. I and I like have to I catch up on gap in my education. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I guess uh, I shall. Uh, uh, any last words, Christine? I could add some stuff to what you just shared, but I'll leave it because <laughs> I know that's not the point. Like if you read over the 1978 declaration, it does take into account previous promises. And I remember being a little girl and my mom said, what was the most important thing that's happened this year? You know, it was a real rejoicing. So anyway, but I won't get into that. It, it's a tricky one to understand. But oh, yeah. no, I it was a popular decision in many places. It was, yeah, no, it I really appreciate the course. Yeah, it might have been unpopular in St. George, but uh, lots of places <laughs> all, people all were All I knew was rejoicing. All I knew was rejoicing in my corner. All right. Well, thank you. Oh, my pleasure. And uh, yeah, thank you all for participating. And we will, um, yeah, throw me any ideas for uh, courses you'd like to see later in the year. Star Trek. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> <laughs> all right. On that note. Bye, everybody.